Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 4, Session 5, and it is Thursday, 18th of March, 2021. This session this morning, we're, we're taking a, a slight um, sidestep, and this is called The Shadow of the Pandemic, Triaging Respiratory Illness and Fevers in Primary Care, Part 1. It's been 12 months since the WHO declared the COVID-19 pandemic, and with only two active cases in Victoria this week, we are in an enviable, the enviable position of focusing most of our COVID-19 a la carte of attention on the vaccine rollout logistics. Meanwhile, the shadow of the pandemic stalks us as a health system, and many of us are taking stock of rising mental health presentations, and more recently, the out-of-tempo seasonal viruses running through our communities. With our pandemic response systems and processes now well-worn goats tracks in primary care, the questions we'll be asking this morning are, are our COVID-safe practices causing problems downstream? What is the role of primary care in regards to triaging respiratory illnesses and fevers at this time? What models of care might we adopt in the interim whilst we await biological protection of primary care health workers through our Commonwealth vaccination program? And how do we work these models in with some of the operational realities of our primary care system at this time? All right, so what have we got on the agenda this morning? Okay, it's going to be a great session, I think. Um, we, you know, we've got some new faces, which is wonderful. Um, and we've got some rock stars, Kate Graham, for anyone who tuned into the RACGP webinar last night. Our own Kate um, was uh, one of the stars of the show and didn't she just do incredibly? Kate, I don't know if you managed to get out on the tiles afterwards, if they gave you a rider and if you and Collins Street partied late. So apologies if we've gotten you out of bed early. Um, but yeah, well done. Um, really, really proud to see you up there answering so many questions. What a source of um, reliable information now you've become, really become for um, not only just us, but the Vic and Taz um, crew. I'd like to welcome um, Belinda Khan. Belinda Khan is a GP. Well, we're going to, I'm saying first and foremost a GP, but she's also ED physician trained and works at the um, Bowen Health Emergency Department. Um, Belinda's here today because she's got those two, two roles of understanding um, really how what the realities are in primary care and also what's coming through those emergency doors right now. So um, Belinda's going to give us a bit of an update about what's coming through the doors and what's happening at the moment and a bit of a um, have a bit of a um, puzzle around this problem of where we're um, sitting at the moment. So welcome and thanks, Belinda. Now we're going to welcome Dr. Steve Fran and Mel West um, this morning, who are um, GP and practice nurse at Drysdale Medical Centre. They've got a service system case presentation um, and they're going to set, set a puzzle for the group. Um, and, um, and it's so nice to welcome back Rachel Cowan, Head of Infectious Diseases at Ballarat Health Services and Infectious Diseases Physician at Bowen Health. You can send any of your questions through to Rachel um, in the chat. She's there to answer all questions, you know, blood clots, you know, all sorts of things that are coming out in the news at the moment. Feel free to send them through to Rachel. Rachel's going to be on our paddle. We've got Tim Denton, who's an acting medical director. I hope I got that right, Tim, um, at Codinia Health, and that's a GP respiratory clinic. So what's up with them and what are they doing at the moment? How are they solving this challenge? And we're joined by Jeff Urquhart with his GP liaison unit hat on. Um, so basically, if we throw to the learning outcomes, the thing that you've probably noticed is we've always had a triple aim. It's dealing with COVID, thinking about how we evaluate those non-SARS-CoV-2 respiratory symptoms and fevers, and thinking about continuing care prov provision. This year, we added in the vaccination, but we're coming back to that second aim. Um, which has been with us the whole way along. Here we go, Kate Graham, and we'll take two with you in a moment, Belinda. Thanks, Kate. Hi, everyone. Um, so in terms of health pathway updates for the COVID vaccination pathways this week, I think um, one of the things I really wanted to flag for people is in the information section, 
there's a newsletter which comes out from the Victorian State Health Department, um, Department of Health, and it's now available for people to subscribe to. So if you're a vaccine provider, it's a really important newsletter um, that's available for really sort of that Victorian perspective on things. Um, the other things that I wanted to let people know about that we are actually working on, in the Health Pathways, we've got um, information on managing the post-vaccination symptoms for Category 1A at the moment in terms of who should be COVID tested within that first 48 hours because we know that within that 1A you've got a higher risk of exposure in certain workforces. Um, we're getting some clarification on management of the 1B population as a second sort of point. So that's still coming, but it's sitting with the Department of Health at the moment in Victoria. And um, the other thing that um, I wanted to flag that is still being clarified as well is the drawing up of the um, COVID vaccination AstraZeneca um, and whether it can be drawn up in advance. The advice at the moment until we get that formal clarification is that it has to be drawn up and immediately given. Um, it's sitting with this uh, Federal Department of Health at the moment. I had a conversation with them yesterday about this. Where they're at is they had to um, sort of liaise with AstraZeneca Global um, to get some advice around this um, and what was actually permitted. And they're sort of discussing further with ATAGI at the moment to sort of clarify the instructions for us. So the moment that we get that, it'll be uploaded as well. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to flag that I think may be on a slide later on, um, but I might be wrangling children at that point in time, is that um, we have something available through the PHN, um, which is the Emergency Response Practice Tool. Um, so what that tool is, is it's really a planning tool um, for emergencies of all types. So it's not just pandemic emergencies but it does sort of cover pandemics um, in that. So it's really um, simple to access. It takes about four hours for a practice to complete it, but you meet the um, standards by doing that. It doesn't have to be done all at once. Um, so what you then sort of have is you've got your own sort of specific emergency response so that if we are faced with floods or bushfires or further pandemics, hopefully not, but, you know, I'm never saying never at this point, um, it's free for all participants. Um, we currently have, I think, about 95 um, practices available. I can't remember um, exactly how many. Sorry, it's not on my notes here. But um, each participating practice will actually receive fully subsidised access to it and support to start um, planning with that. So please contact your practice facilitator or email the email that's up there, the QI at Westwick PHN, um, because that is something that is free and available for everyone through the PHN. And I'll leave that for me for now. We'll get back to the important information. Um, but I wanted to flag as well, just that we do have a lot of paediatric pathways um, that were developed in conjunction with the Royal Children's Hospital up there. So when you're thinking of assessing things, I think in all aspects of clinical care, um, particularly with respiratory stuff, going back to your first principles and to assessing things. Um, asthma is something I'm seeing a lot of in the respiratory clinic at the moment as well, um, particularly the infective exacerbations. So it's good to keep those things in mind. So I'll leave it there.
Thank you, Kate. All right, take two back over to you, Belinda. <laughs> thanks very much. And thanks very much, Kate, because that's a nice segue in because I did actually review pretty much all of the kids' hospital um, guidelines last night and they're terrific. They're a really excellent resource and they're very succinct and easy to follow. So uh, with that in mind, I'm just uh, taking up where I left off and my, my stopwatch has restarted uh, and I'm up for one and a half minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so well or unwell, the tool I use is the one developed by Peter Hewson, who's a local um, Geelong paediatrician, as many of you will know, and it's the um, ABC Fluid In Fluid Out, originally designed for signs of illness in young babies, uh, so six months and under, but is, is applicable in other areas as well. So A for activity, B for breathing, C for circulation, and uh, Fluids In Fluids Out refers to less than uh, 50% of intake or output, uh, indicating dehydration or three nappies or less in a 24-hour period. So um, having determined whether they're well or unwell, I'll move on to specific management. And I'll just run through very briefly the common presentations that we're seeing. So uh, gastro is, uh, for me, a three-step process after excluding other diagnoses. So I begin with uh, ondansetron in those over six months of age. And the dose of ondansetron, uh, easy to remember, if you're under four, it's two milligrams. And if you're four or more, it's four milligrams. And uh, I find that the oral disintegrating tablet, and in general practice, if you're writing a script, you can write for eight milligrams, and that way the dose uh, of four milligrams is only $2 instead of four. Uh, so wait 20 minutes and then give a large dose of Panadol. So I've written there the standard dose, but you can actually give a loading dose of 20 milligrams per kilo. And I find that that's really effective so that 20 minutes later when it comes to fluid, the child's hopefully no longer vomiting, feeling on top of the world with their Panadol load, and uh, they're much uh, more receptive to drinking. And the best fluid I find is the one that they like. Uh, so most often in emergency, I use dilute cordial, very, very dilute cordial. And sometimes I'll use a syringe because some kids are a bit tired and prefer to have it squirted in, uh, whereas others are happy to drink or suck through a straw, just whatever works and whatever gets the fluid in. And um, it would be very rare for me to admit somebody with gastro after that regime. It's really effective. Uh, and then the other things we're seeing commonly, obviously, respiratory illnesses. So bronchiolitis, uh, often in the age group up to one year of old with wheeze, generalised preps, fever and cough. And uh, there are sadly no medications that help with bronchiolitis, zero. And the things that work are um, hydrating. Um, and the things that bring them to hospital are if they're not managing oral hydration or if they need oxygen. And we give oxygen for sets of less than 90. So um, uh, again, uh, in the old days, we would have given it for many more indications than that. But now it's just if they've got sets less than 90. Um, so after bronchiolitis, there's asthma which as Kate said, we're seeing heaps of, and uh, a standard practice. So under six years of age, six puffs fire a um, spacer and mask of the Ventolin or Salbutamol. And plus or minus, if you've got moderately severe, you can consider adding Ipratropium or Atrovent in a dose of four puffs for the under six-year-olds. And for six and over, it's uh, 12 puffs of Salbutamol and eight puffs of the Atrovent. Um, you can repeat that every 20 minutes for an hour, and you can also consider a dose of prednisolone. Now, the stat dose for in moderate severe asthma is now two milligrams per kilo per dose rather than the, the standard one. And then you can consider on days two or three adding another one milligram per kilo per dose. Um, uh, so asthma, the next croup, uh, again, something you will see a lot of, and a single dose of dexmethasone, 0.15 milligrams per kilo. If they've got um, uh, stridor, particularly, obviously if they've got stridor at rest, inspiratory and expiratory, then hospital might be a better destination. Um, if you're actually um, really stuck out in general practice and you've got a really sick kid and you're waiting for the ambulance, um, obviously the standard approach we'd use is the, um, the five milligrams of uh, uh, adrenaline via space uh, via nebulizer. That's not particularly easy in general practice. And so I think it's always good just to remember the IM dose of adrenaline. So 10 micrograms per kilo. So in a one-year-old, that'd be 100 micrograms. Uh, and if you're thinking about weights, a one-year-old's 10 kilos. And if you add two kilos for every 
year of life after that up to 10, that will give you the ballpark weights and doses. So a one-year-old, uh, 10 kilos, 100 micrograms of adrenaline IM. A six-year-old, 20 kilos, approximately 200 mics. 10-year-old, approximately 30, obviously a bit more, 300 mics. So um, just nice, easy round numbers to remember when you're in a, an emergency situation is, is helpful. I find that very helpful in emergency when my brain turns off and I have to calculate. Uh, so just uh, straightforward doses. So that's the management of the, um, the common things that we're seeing. And the, the two absolute indications from my point of view to go to hospital would be a fever and a neonate. So under one month of age, fever of more than 38 degrees. Uh, we want to see all of those. And also if the child's unwell. Um, and I would add to that if you're worried. I think if a GP is worried about a child, then that's an indication to be in hospital also. Um, now, having said that, we are being hammered in emergency currently. So we're seeing uh, a lot more uh, than we usually do at this time of year. So our standard number of children would be 40 at this time of year. We're now up to 70. Uh, and uh, we're sending home 50 of those. And so most of these are patients who would ordinarily pre-COVID have been seen and managed in the general practice setting, and most of them have respiratory illnesses. Um, so the strategies we're using in ED to manage these really large numbers are things like cohorting. So we'll see uh, you know, a group of six of them in the waiting room with their consent. Uh, so in a public setting, uh, wearing one set of PPE, just uh, go around and uh, change gloves in between. Um, on occasion, I'll just see somebody in the waiting room with my um, standard surgical mask on and keep my distance. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, I can minimise my um, physical interaction with them and still uh, achieve the goal of safe care. Um, we're also um, bringing them into our one of our four paediatric cubicles. And if they were there for less than 15 minutes or so, we're doing a touch clean, which means that the only cleaning we're doing is wiping down the seat they sat on with a, uh, an antiseptic wipe and then straight on to the next patient. Uh, that's changed. It used to be uh, different, but now we're um, able to do that in our current climate of having only two patients in Victoria with um, COVID currently. Uh, so um, the other thing I do is I ask them to have COVID swabs in the community because the time it takes to get the COVID swab in ED means that they're there for very, very prolonged periods. And currently we've got wait times, anything up to six to eight hours. So we're trying to minimise doing things for well people that can be done in the community. So we send them off to the community testing set, um, setting. And I also do that in general practice. So my strategies in general practice when I see these patients, um, I, uh, I see them in the car park. Uh, I know everyone will have their own solutions to this very difficult problem. Uh, because obviously you don't want to uh, wipe yourself out or your practice by having uh, somebody with COVID in your practice. Um, but uh, so I see them in the car park and I see we have a gazebo tent uh, and uh, we also see them in their cars. So uh, I find that um, pre-COVID, I obviously would have looked in the ears and throats of almost every child I saw. Um, uh, during COVID, I hardly ever do that. And if you think about it, um, if they've got an ear infection, antibiotics aren't indicated unless they're very unwell. Uh, if they have a throat infection under four years of age, group A strep is vanishingly rare. So again, it doesn't actually change management. I mean, it's nice for people to know that they've got tonsillitis or an ear infection, um, but it doesn't actually change management in the vast majority of cases. So I don't always look in their throat and ears. Uh, and I also send them for swabs in the community. Uh, so some people might be horrified by these shortcuts that we're taking, uh, but uh, at the moment in we're un unusual times and the aim is to do things safely whilst being able to see and manage these patients. Uh, and I find that, that telehealth um, for me doesn't work Quite so well with kids you know i find the visual is very important and also having that contact with the parents to be able to reassure them or um, management advice that's appropriate um so um yeah thanks very much so that concludes the panel presentation for this session we'll bring you any other snippets that we can but come along and join the discussion next week 
All right. Well, with that, um, guys, good luck with your rollout next week. Sounds like I think the, the vibe is let's, uh, you know, fit our own oxygen masks first before we fit the children. So um, definitely thinking about staff as the priority, but um, I'd be interested to hear how you're going to stagger that if uh, 50% are getting significant symptoms. So are you staggering it? Are you going to just get everyone done and get them all having a cruddy weekend um, by a Friday vaccination, cruddy weekend? You know, let's hear what's happened. Let's get see what that conversation is next week. Good luck, um, Mark. March 22 for all of those who are off and running. And uh, and let's see how this vaccination actually changes the conversation around the non-COVID respiratory infections over the coming weeks. Um, next week, um, we'll, we'll turn this conversation to Ballarat and hear what's happening there. Janine and, and, and Anna's crew expect a phone call and I'd love you to help me pull some together. Have a great holiday, Rachel. We, we, uh, you deserve a good break. We'll see you next Thank week, you. everyone. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.